For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day that man will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people, saying, It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding, instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray for his help now. Lord God, as we come now to this time, we desire to hear from you. We desire to know your word. We thank you that you speak through this word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to understand your word. We pray that you'd give us wisdom to know what you are saying to each one of us how to live out your word. Show us how we might know you and follow you. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit uh, because we come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in this name. Amen. Well, Homer wrote in the Iliad that shame greatly helps 
or greatly hurts mankind. Shame greatly helps or greatly hurts mankind. Now, to see if Homer is right or wrong, we first have to think about what shame is. Shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable. So it's a deep sense. It's more than just embarrassment. If I bump into you and spill coffee on you, I will be embarrassed, but not ashamed. But it's a a deeper sense. And it's a deeper sense of feeling unaccepted by people or a person or, or a group. And so this is what makes shame different from guilt. If I get a speeding ticket, uh, I will be guilty. I should feel guilty. I have broken the law. But I'm probably not going to feel deeply ashamed because getting a speeding ticket is just something in our society that uh, nobody thinks is really abnormal and just, you know, a shameful thing to do. And so you can feel guilty and you can be guilty of, of something and not feel shame. But shame is a deep sense of being unacceptable. And you can feel unacceptable by something that you do. Uh, If you go and you scam the elderly, well, not only are you guilty, but you should also feel shame because most people don't go around scamming the elderly. And you would feel shame if you're a Christian, if you're in this church. People in our church don't do that sort of thing. And so you would feel that this group thinks badly about you. So it could be something that you do. Shame can come because of something that is done to you. So maybe when you were a kid, you felt shame when your parents yelled at you and said, you're good for nothing. You'll never make anything out of your life. You felt this deep sense that you were not accepted by your parents and by your family. Or in a smaller way, maybe you were the last kid to be picked on the soccer team and you realize you don't fit in with the rest of your soccer team. Or the guy didn't ask you to the prom and so you're not acceptable in his sight. So it's not something that you do, it's just something done to you. But then lastly, you can feel shame just by something that is associated with you. It's not something you do or that someone else does. It's just associated with you. I grew up in uh, a Hispanic place, and uh, so everybody around me was much shorter than me. They're about this tall. They had black hair. They had browner skin. And so I stood out, literally. I was taller than everybody else. I had yellow hair and I was white. And so I felt unaccepted, unacceptable, because I knew that I was different from all the other kids around me. That's not a thing that's anything that I did wrong or that anyone did wrong to me. It's just how I felt. And so you can feel shame over those things. One person said, shame is like dirt. No matter how it got there, You're a mess, and something has to be done about it. Shame is like dirt. You feel dirty. Maybe you did it, something you did, maybe something somebody did to you, but no matter how it got there, something needs to be done about this feeling of being unacceptable. Okay, so that's shame. Homer says it greatly helps or greatly hurts mankind. Well, I think we can all see how it hurts us. We don't like the feeling of shame, but how does it help us? Well, shame can help us when it points us to sin, when it points us to what is right and what is wrong. If shame is like dirt, then shame is a reminder to us 
that we don't like this dirt. We want to be clean. And we should be clean. And we wish that we lived in a world where we were clean. And so for you, when you are tempted to sin, when you're thinking about sinning, shame should be something that motivates you to not sin. If I do this thing, I'm going to feel ashamed. I'm going to feel unacceptable with my family, with my church, or representing Christ as a Christian. And so shame should restrain your sin. And the same thing for other people. When they are going to do something to you, they should think about the harm that it will do to shame you, to bring shame upon you. So in that sense, shame can be a help to mankind. And so as we come to this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah is telling us that there is a big problem in society when a society has no shame. A society is shameless about their sin. And this is part of God's judgment upon a society and upon a nation, is that They continue in sin, they refuse his warnings, and so God gives them up to their sin, so much so that they no longer even feel ashamed of what they're doing. Ashamed of their own sins or how they bring shame on other people. We're in a bad point in society when things are like this. So that's what we're going to see in this chapter. I want to begin the chapter by going to the end of it and see that this is a shelled city that Isaiah describes. He's talking about Jerusalem. So look at chapter 3, verse 25, and we'll go to chapter 4, verse 1, and, and read that again. Things are so bad in society, here is where they are going to end up. So here's the end, and then we'll go back and we'll see all the things that are leading up to this final consequence. So here's the end, chapter 3, 25. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she she shall sit on the ground, and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. first five chapters of Isaiah are are sort of like the trailer. They're the teaser for the whole book. And so it's introducing us to the whole book. And and in chapter two, we saw the mountain of the house of the Lord exalted above the the highest of the mountains, a, a symbolic Jerusalem, a perfect Jerusalem. But then after the first five verses, chapter two, verse six, we start to see the the real Jerusalem as it is in Isaiah's day and it's it's degradation. And so In verses 6 to 22 of chapter 2, we saw the religious problems, the problems of idolatry and exalting man. But now here in chapter 3, we see the social problems and the political problems in the nation. And as a consequence, destruction is going to happen to Jerusalem. Things are going to be so bad, it says here in verse 1 of chapter 4, that the ratio of men to women is going to be one man For seven women, because all those other men have died in war. It's going to be a terrible battle and terrible destruction. Verse 25, the men fall by the sword. In verse 26, the the gates lament and mourn. And it's as if it's saying that there are no people around to mourn. It's empty, it's desolate. But the gates are the only ones left to mourn. And so it's a picture of a city that has been totally demolished and destroyed. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 B.C. by Babylonians, rebuilt, and then later on, after the time of Christ in the year A.D. 70, destroyed again. There's actually a coin of Rome from the year 70 that has a picture of a woman sitting there alone and mourning. And uh, I'm sure that the emperor of Rome did not do it to, because to, uh, he knew what Isaiah said. But, but it's, a, it's a fulfillment of what Isaiah said. 
The women are there, desolate and alone. Things are so bad here in verse 1 of chapter 4 that uh, the women are desperate to find a husband. And they say, look, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to provide bread or clothes for us. We'll make sure that's taken care of. All we want is to be married. Just give us your last name. Give us a child. Take away our reproach. That's all we need. And so we start to see here that society's been turned upside down. It's the man who is supposed to court and go after the woman. It's the man who is supposed to present himself as worthy of marriage. And I, I can provide for you. I can work hard for you. See, see how many years that I've, I've worked and, and I will be a good husband to you. Will you marry me? But here we have uh, seven women desperate, just fawning and flocking on this guy. Please marry us. We'll do everything as long as we can have your name. And so the, the end result is that there are no quality men around in society. That's the type of judgment and destruction that has taken place. So that's the final uh, consequence. But what is leading up to all this? Well, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. In chapter 3, as we look at verses 1 to 7, uh, we see a government that's in shambles. Government is, uh, the, the nation is bursting apart at the seams. And, uh, you know, something with a seam, like a, a bag with seams, it's bursting apart because pressure is being put upon it and the seams are there to hold the bag, the fabric, together. Well, that's the role of government. People are sinners. People always want to seek their own selfish ways and their own sin. And part of the role of government is to restrain sin, according to Romans 13. And so government is one of the things that's constantly like, guys, get along, get along, stop, stop hurting each other, stop stealing from each other. But that's not happening. So let's see what it says in verses 1 to 5. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. Now verse 2, he's taking away the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And then in verse 4, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. So God, in his judgment, takes away the supports, even the support of bread, access to food and water. God takes away leaders, uh, leaders that are good and leaders that are, that are bad. Uh, the, the diviner and the magicians, these are not people that God wanted in, in place. But they are people that Israel looked to. And God takes away even those bad leaders. He's taking away all the restraints. So that in verse 5, they're all oppressing one another. He even says in verse 4, infants rule over them. So, it's a picture of God's judgment that children are ruling over a nation. Now, kids, I know that you think about and dream about being president. And you think if you were president, everything in this nation would be great. You have all the answers. You can solve the world's problems. Or maybe you think about being in charge of Disney Company or, or Coca-Cola or Hershey. And uh, you think you would have a great time running these corporations. But, but kids, you are not qualified to be president. And you're not qualified to run multi-million dollar organizations. It's a judgment when people who are as incompetent as children 
are ruling over a nation. Now, it could be that literally he's speaking of actual children who are uh, ruling and making decisions, but I think most likely this is a metaphor. It's as if infants are leading. It's as if incompetent people who are as competent as children are leading the nation. That's God's judgment upon a nation. Childish people are in charge. And so this leads to chaos. It leads to a chaos in verse 5 where there is no respect for authority. There is no respect for people who are in these positions, who are in honorable positions. And by the way, that reminds us Christians that we ought to respect and honor those who are in authority over us. That we are called to pray in 1 Timothy 2 for kings and all who are in high positions. We are to pray for them. We are to respect them. We are to honor them because of the position of authority that they're in. Well, then he goes on to give us this scene in verses 6 to 7. Another example of a shambolic government. He says in verse 6, A man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. This heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. So, here, here's a scene where uh, nobody wants to lead. There is no leader. And so uh, a, a group of guys comes along. There's a guy in his father's house, meaning that he wants to keep to himself. He wants to stay away from all the mess that's going on, on out there. He's in his father's house, and people come, and they say, we want you to be the leader. Why? Because you have a cloak. You have a coat. You have a Navy suit. We'll make you president. That's basically what they're saying. Okay, you're not qualified, you're not competent, but you have a cloak, and nobody else has a cloak. You be our leader. And the guy says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be a healer here. This, this thing's a heap of ruins. Look at this heap of ruins. Who's going to want to be in charge of this? No, I will not. And so you see the, you see the point, you see the picture here. This guy with a cloak. Not even he wants to lead. And so here's the point. There are no men who are qualified. There are no men who are competent. There are no men who are willing to lead. Men who will stand up, step up, and take leadership. Well, then we have one more example of the society and the government uh, down He goes down in verse 12 to 15. He says in verse 12, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So another example of lack of willing, qualified, competent men to lead. He repeats again, verse 12, infants are their oppressors. And then he adds, and women rule over them. Women. Now again, it could be a literal statement, just like it could be literally there are children on the throne. Literally there are women ruling. That happened a couple times with queens like Queen Athaliah, who was a wicked queen. Um, but it, see, it does seem to me that most likely, this is also a metaphor for the men who are not acting like men. 
Women rule over them. Look at these men. They're acting like women. And I think it's talking about the men because in verse 14 it mentions elders, who are males, and princes. And so God's rebuking the male leaders. He doesn't say it's the princesses, but the princes. And yet, they are men on the throne, or maybe we should say they are males sitting on the throne in these positions. They are males who are not acting like men. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, act like men. There's a certain type of what a man should act like to take leadership to be bold, to have courage. And this is what God is saying, that these men are not acting like men. Now, this applies to us in our position. We're not really talking about government, but but here, society and and in the homes especially. Maybe you've heard the uh, saying, the joke that people like to make that Well, men are the head, but women are the neck. And so they say, well, yeah, he's in charge officially, but the neck turns the head. And the woman really gets the man to do whatever she wants him to do. And that's part of what I think Isaiah is rebuking. It could be that these men even who are officially in these positions are even being guided and influenced by a wife, or wives, or moms, doing whatever their mom tells them to do. That happened too in in Israel's day with kings. And so people say, well, women are the neck, although men men are the head. Well, first of all, it doesn't even make sense. The, The brain is in the head, and the brain tells the neck to turn. Uh, and then the neck turns the head. But biblically, that's not how things are supposed to go. It's not that a man is just in this sort of symbolic position of leadership, but he really does whatever his wife tells him to do. No, biblically, men are to lead their homes and lead the church. Now, to lead the church doesn't mean that you or to lead your home also, doesn't mean that you just totally ignore whatever women think or whatever women say. Of course not. As a husband, you're to love your wife and you're to live with your wife in an understanding way. And so you need to know your wife and what she thinks, but you are also to guide her and to teach her and to pray for her and to lead her along. So, women... Maybe you face this temptation of wanting to be the neck that turns the head. Uh, You know the saying also, a happy wife is a happy life. And women know, happy wife is a happy life. I can make my husband's life miserable. And if I make his life miserable, I can basically do, get, get whatever I want. I can make him do anything. And so, This is an exaggerated example, but so you want a Lexus. You want a Lexus. You know that if you just pout enough, if you just are miserable enough, that probably you are going to break your husband down and you think he's going to say, okay, fine, just go buy the Lexus. Or if you don't like coming to a church, you know. Every Sunday morning, all you got to do is remind him how miserable you are. And you can't stand going to this church all the time. You know that this is going to get him to eventually say, okay, fine, we'll just, we'll just leave the church, go somewhere else. But that's not a biblical idea. Uh, you have to restrain that temptation that uh, your husband is called to lead your family. And you are called to support your husband. Of course, you can ask questions and you can tell him how you feel and, and what you think, but you are called to support your husband. And he is called 
to lead you. Now here's the crucial point for the rest of this passage. Is that because God has made men to be leaders of the home and the church, all the problems that we see are ultimately at the feet of the men. Men are responsible for all these things that happen. We're going to see God talk about the shameless sin in the society. At the end of the day, that's because God has removed manly men who, who, uh, who are willing to lead. God has removed them. And because there are no men who are leading, that's what leads to shameless sin. And we're going to talk about women's dress, starting in verse 16. But at the end of the day, that's at the feet, it's the responsibility of the men, of fathers and husbands. So, don't think this is like an anti-woman sermon. This is taking the men to task as the ones who are ultimately responsible. Men, you must lead. You must lead yourselves. You must have self-control over your own sin. And I think this is why many men don't want to lead. Because they know that that sets a bar for them. That they then have to control their own sin if they're going to lead their families and their churches to grow to be like Christ. Men need to lead in their families and disciplining their children and in teaching their children. And the point that I'm trying to make is that men, we are always leading. We are always leading even when we're not leading, if you know what I mean. In the military, they call it a dereliction of duty. If a, a superior sends his soldiers out to battle and he just sits around doing nothing, he's sleeping, that's dereliction of duty. So if they lose the battle, does he say, well, they're just a bad soldiers, they should have won the battle. Well, sure, they should have won the battle, they're bad soldiers, but whose fault is it? It's your fault for being derelict in your duties. And so we can say, oh, look at these children. They're so unruly, so undisciplined. Look at, look at the women and the way that they dressed. Well, whose fault is it? It's the men who are derelict in their duties. This is the point of why the male leadership is leading to all of these things, or the lack of leadership. So now let's go to the shameless sin. In verses 8 to 9. In verses 8 to 9, we see Israel stumbles and slides further into sin. Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil. On themselves. So the sin here is shameless. First of all, they defy the glorious presence of God at the end of verse 8. This is Jerusalem. This is where the temple is. The holy of holies and the glory of God. And, and yet they are within eyeshot of seeing the holy of holies. And they're seeing this great temple. And there they are. Sinning against that very God, defying him, defying his presence. The look on their faces bears witness against them. They are so entrenched in their sin that you see it on their face. You just look at them and you know exactly what kind of sinner they are. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. Now, doesn't exactly say that they have the exact sin as Sodom, but that they are as bold as Sodom. They proclaim it like this. So the sin of Sodom was very open, very public. 
Listen to what God says in Genesis 18, verse 20. Because the outcry against Sodom is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. God goes down to see what is all this outcry about. Now you understand, it's not, this is an analogy. It's not like God doesn't know this. Of course, God knows this. He sees it. But what's happening? There's an outcry. That's why he says this. He's emphasizing that people are coming to him. God, you got to do something about Sodom. This is bad. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe he's God is hearing all these people praying for Sodom to either repent or be judged. Who knows? Maybe it's the angels. The angels don't know everything. So maybe they're traveling and they go by Sodom. They're, whoa, 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 this is bad. Let's, we need to go tell God. Let's report to God what's going on in Sodom. The outcry is great. So the point is, whether it's other Old Testament saints or whether it's angels, I don't know, it's visible. These things aren't being done in houses. They're not being done in secret. This is public sin that people can see and know is happening. And then in Genesis 19, verse 5, we see that when the two men are in Lot's house, a group of men comes and says, bring these men out. They're not secretly asking for those men. They're publicly, openly asking for these men to be brought out. And in fact, didn't Lot say to the guys, you need to not be in the square. You need to come into my house because what goes on in the square? It's public. Everybody knows what's going on there. This is the type of sin that's happening. People are shameless. They're doing it publicly. It's well known. It's boasted about. People have pride over their sin. Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 12, It is shameful to speak of the things they do in secret. It's shameful to do these things in secret. It's shameful to even speak of the things people do in secret. How much more shameful to not do them in secret, but to have pride and to boast and to be shameless about what you do. And so this brings the judgment of God. Verse 9, woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Now, what about us? What about us, even Christians? Where is your shame over your sin? Do you feel shame when you sin? Or is your sin shameless? Gregory the Great said, If you're not afraid of being wicked, you should at least be afraid of being seen as wicked. Because when you freely sin and you're unashamed about your sin in front of others, you just become immersed in your sin all the more. Secret sin is bad, but we're not going to talk about secret sin today. We're talking about sin in front of others. When you sin in front of others, in a sense, you've, you've come out. You've let yourself out to, to let people know who you are. And if you don't feel shame, then that just makes you become more and more immersed. It makes, you, it makes it easier to sin the next time. So, we can think about the sins that probably take place in our homes. Fathers, let's, uh, let's do an experiment for, for all of us. If we were to bring your sin and put it front and center here and have the whole church watch you, think about, would you be ashamed of it? 
So fathers, if the whole church was watching the way that you screamed at your kids and blew up in anger at them, would you be ashamed? So then the question is, so why would I be ashamed to do that in front of my whole church, but not ashamed to do that in front of my children or in front of my wife? Wives, what about the way that you snapped at your husband? Would you want the whole church knowing how you snapped at him? Well, if your husband is a believer, why did you have no shame to sin in front of a fellow believer, your own husband? Children, what about with your own siblings? Would you like the whole church to watch the slapping and the hitting and the pulling of hair and the name-calling and the insults, the things that you call each other or the things that you call your parents? Wouldn't you be ashamed if the whole church watched you do those things? So why do you feel no shame to do those things in front of your parents? So, this is the problem. This is a problem when we are shameless. We need to recover the feeling of shame of what our sin brings upon us and the way we bring shame upon others. The way we might shame our family. The way we might shame our church with our sin. So that is the shameless sin. And then we come to now the shameful dress in verses 16 to 24. So now we've looked at the lack of male leadership leading to shameless sin. And now the way that women dress, verse 16. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walked with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. I'm not going to read the rest of the verses. It's basically just a description of different jewelries and articles of clothing, but the point is there in verses 16 and 17. He says in verse 16, this is because the women are haughty. Chapter 2, we saw pride and how men exalt themselves and we exalt men. Well, here's how many women exalt themselves. The daughters of Zion are haughty. Because of their pride, they literally exalt themselves. They walk with outstretched necks. Now, that's not literally saying they stretch out their necks and make their necks really long. But they're walking in a way as if to be above the crowd, as if to stand out, to get the attention. Walking with outstretched necks, okay? So, so they're walking down the street. They want everyone's attention. They want all the men to look at her. They mince along in the way they walk. So even the way they walk is trying to get a man's attention. They tinkle with their feet. They wear these little anklets that that make noise, so, so here's the point, it's just that the, the woman is walking down the street and she, in the way that she walks, in the way that she holds up her head, in the way that she's dressed, it's all designed to make the noise, to get the look, so that all the men on the street will turn and look at her. And that's pride. That's her pride. And when they look at her, as she glances wantonly with her eyes. She's giving flirty looks. She's giving seductive looks. So this is all intended to be sensual. This is all intended to be flirty and, and seductive. Okay, so this is why she is dressing herself this way and wearing the types of things 
that she wears. These things in the list of verses 18 to 24 are all about her attracting attention. Attracting attention of men. Now, some people say that this passage is just about wealthy women. And wealthy women just want to show off their wealth. So they show off their wealth by the things they put in their hair. Well, first of all, I think we could say, for one thing, most people in our society, pretty much everybody, is wealth, wealthy. They have wealth. And they have enough wealth to have the ability to choose what they wear. You have access to jewelry and all these kind of things, all these products, all these clothing. And yet women, many women, they have all these choices. What do they choose? They choose to wear things that will draw attention to themselves. And specifically, it's a sensual kind of dressing to draw attention to their bodies, to certain parts of their bodies, to make men look, to tempt men to lust. Now, men, you are always responsible to not lust. You are always called to have self-control. But I've heard women say sometimes, well, it's the men's fault if they, if they lust. Well, it's their fault for lusting, but it's your fault for the way you dress. You are not to cause temptation, and you don't need to dress and look in such a way that you know is going to draw men's eyes to you or will tempt them to do that. To dress in a way that is sensual. And so that is what Isaiah is saying here. The Bible's commands are clear. Women are to dress modestly. And to not dress modestly is a sign of pride. That's what Isaiah brings out in this passage. To dress immodestly is to exalt yourself. And God says there will come judgment. This is a sin that will bring judgment. And for those who are unbelievers, the ultimate judgment will come uh, facing God. And when God talks about scabs and, and uh, brandings and all these things, all he's saying is that these women who so desperately want to be seen and noticed and to be seen as beautiful and to want all men to turn their eyes to her, these women will feel ugly when they face the judgment of God. They will be full of their sin, facing God with no excuses. And none of these things will matter. None of these articles of clothing or pieces of jewelry will matter when you stand before the judgment of God. That's what Isaiah is saying. So finally, uh, with a few more minutes left, let's end with a promise of God in verse 10. There's good news in verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. You don't want to end just with a bunch of judgment, but with an offer of grace. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. The righteous are those who belong to God by faith. It's through faith that God considers us righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. And those who are righteous in Christ will then seek to live righteous lives. And so these are people who know God and have salvation through faith in Christ. God says it will be well with them. That's an encouraging verse. It's right in the middle of the whole chapter. As you look at government falling apart at the seams, as you look at shameless sin, as you look at the way people dress in society around you, you think, this is awful. 
I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to live in this society anymore. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. God rescues the godly from trials just like he rescued Lot out of Sodom. God will preserve his people in the midst of an ungodly world, in the midst of a world that is falling apart. And so it will go well with us. And we can say that it will always go well with us because we have Jesus Christ. God's throne is a throne of grace. So friends, if you are shameless over your sin, hopefully the word of God brings some conviction over your sin to bring you shame, you should go to the throne of grace. God will receive you and he will forgive you if you come to him sincerely through Jesus Christ. If you come to him full of your shame of your sin, you can know that Christ bore the shame of his people as he hung on the cross. God is always open with a throne of grace to come to him. And that's why we can say, tell the righteous, it shall be well with him. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are holy, righteous, and just. When we come before you, Lord, we pray that you would give us the right kind of shame over our sin. By your mercy, Lord, we pray that you would not leave us to our own depravity and the sinfulness of our hearts but that your Holy Spirit would work in us to produce shame. Shame over sin. Shame that will drive us to Jesus Christ. Thank you that in Christ we do have that covering for our shame. May you help us also to know that healing and freedom and forgiveness of our sin. For all the ways that we have failed you and failed in obeying your law. We can only depend upon your grace, we pray. And give us, your people, help by the Spirit to follow you in a twisted and sinful generation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.